Welcome to my Idaho friends. I am your host, Jaime Lima, and we will be having conversations with business owners and centers of influence throughout the state of Idaho. Please make sure you follow us on our YouTube page and our Instagram, and I hope you enjoy the show. Cheers. Hello, fam, and welcome to another episode of My Idaho Friends. I am your host, Jaime Lima, and as always, coming to you live from uh, Argos Production Studio via Argos Stream. Uh, huge shout out, as always, to the Argos Production team, Justin, Erica, Sweet Baby James out in the back, making sure that everything's working and going smoothly and just fine. Uh, before we get started, as usual, a couple of shout outs, big shout outs to Roar. One and only sponsor, Vital Elements, uh, CBD products over here, local, and yes, with the exception of the farm. I get that. That's across the border. But everything else is from here. So if you're in need of CBD products, please hit up the link for my Idaho friends. You can find it on our Facebook page. You can find it also uh, on our YouTube channel as well. Oh boy, you guys, today, I am so, so very excited, you know, because I'm never not excited. Uh... I get to have a really, really cool conversa conversation with Sarah Santillas. Sarah is an author, and she's also uh, involved on in a very, very, very cool nonprofit that I'm also very proud to be a part of. And I'm not going to steal any of her, th of her thunder, the Asians, the thunders. So mm. <laughs> without further ado, let's give her a nice My Idaho Friends welcome. Hello, Sarah. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you perfectly. Hi, Jaime. Thank you for having me here. I'm so happy to get to talk to you today. Yeah, me too. And thank you for accommodating uh, the virtual setup. Um, so we would have loved to have you here at the studio, but you know, you are out of uh, Haley, correct? Mm -hmm. So yep, correct. and we're and we're all over here. And you know, I guess one of the good things is like you know, if you were here, we would have had to wear a mask, which is fine. But you know, <laughs> this just gives us at least you know we can see you, we can see your beautiful smile. So, um, <laughs> thank you for making the time to be here. We certainly appreciate it. Um, so yeah, hi. Hi. I hope you don't mind. I brought something to drink. Um, so let's get started. Uh, we're going to have a really good time. Um, there's so many things that I want to cover with you, but before we get to what we're doing, oh, excuse me, what we, what you're doing right now and what you're going to be doing in the near and the far future, I want us to take us to a little bit of a journey. Uh, and I like to always narrow it down to about 10 years ago. So with our guests. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, and then tell us, you know, let's just start it with the 10, a year, 10 years ago. Where was Sarah Santillas at at that time? 10 years ago. It's weird to think about. Um, let's see. So before 10 years ago, I grew up in Texas. I ended up going to college on the East Coast. Um, I was an elementary school teacher in Compton, California after that, and then decided that I wanted to be an Episcopal priest. Um, I went to divinity school, then realized that wasn't what I wanted to do and started writing. But 10, 10 years ago, 2010, I was um, living in, where was I living 10 years ago? I think I might've been living in Tahoe, California at the time. Um, I'd been a professor in other parts of California and Southern California. And my husband and I 
left being professors and tried to figure out what might come next for us. And then soon after that, we moved to Portland. So in 2011, I moved to Portland and I was um, an adjunct professor. I taught at uh, Pacific Northwest College of Art in Portland. I taught critical theory to visual artists. I love working with artists. So I started doing that in 2011 and um, taught around Portland, mostly at PNCA for about five years until I ended up moving to Haley, Idaho, which is where I live now. Wow, cool. So Professor Todd's uh, whole family is in academia. How did that get started? Where do you guys go to school at? I went, well, I went to undergrad at Yale and I studied literature and art history there. And then I went to Harvard for divinity school and got a master's in divinity and then um, realized I wasn't ever going to be an Episcopal priest. I was trying to become an Episcopal priest around 2001 after 9-11 when the whole country was really taking a turn towards conservatism. And it was hard enough already being a woman in Christianity trying to be a leader in the church and it got even harder to try to be a progressive woman <laughs> feminist in the church um, so I didn't really fit very well um, and I decided that well if I wasn't going to be a priest then I wanted to know everything there was to know about theology and the ways that people had thought about God so I ended up getting a doctorate in the study of theology also at Harvard um, and I was writing a dissertation on theological imagination, on the idea that you have to be able to imagine a better world before you can help bring that world into being. When the torture photographs taken at the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq were made public, um, and people were referring to them as crucifixion images. And I wanted to know why that narrative of salvific violence was being imposed on the bodies of men who were being tortured, most of whom were Muslim. Uh, so I changed my dissertation topic and started writing about photography and narratives of violence and what our responsibility is when we see pictures of other people in pain. Um, and that kind of set off the trajectory for the rest of my life after that. Wow. I'm so glad that I asked that question. <laughs> I had I'm no weirder idea. than you knew. I'm weirder than you knew. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's that that's pretty that's pretty intense and and that you know is when you were looking at the timeline uh that that takes you know a, a great deal of conviction because I'm sure uh is I, I don't know that I want to put it so much as like on 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 the inside a conservative box, but that's uh at the very like right and smack in the middle of you know the country just coming uh not well already being wrapped up together with this like narrative like us against them um and and me myself you know and, and th this is not about me but my experiences as a marine and, and being deployed multiple times you know uh it, it really it, it's interesting to me because uh I, I don't think anybody's was probably just jumping at the bit of like going down that rabbit hole of like you know how does this imagery affect you know or points of view and and how is this information gonna give somebody else you know uh, a perspective as to what's actually happening um i mean I, now of course we have the um i should say the comfort the privilege of time you know we we fast forward and and of course you know none of what was happening you know what was right and you know none of it that's not how we are supposed to be treating people and we hold ourselves to a very very high standard um even if you know 
other countries that we might be in conflict with or in combat, you know, will do that, you know, uh, to us. So it's it's a very weird, tricky thing because uh, I would, well, it's not that I would imagine. I remember that, you know, it's all about, you know, the, the us versus them rhetoric. So it was probably rather challenging for you to, not only be writing about it, but then explaining <laughs> what you were what you were writing about and 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 having to uh, you know um, I, I don't know if I want to use the word defend it, but perhaps going to further detail as to where this point of view is coming from and why it is important. Yeah, it was a very intense experience. I mean, my my I had had the same advisor for several years, and he stopped being my advisor when I switched my dissertation topic. I don't think because he necessarily opposed what I was writing about, but. Um, didn't think it was an appropriate topic to be writing about for my dissertation. Um, but right. the real change for me came when um, I was finishing my dissertation while I was teaching at um, Cal State University Channel Islands, which is one of the newest uh, CSUs in California. And I was actually teaching about ethics and aesthetics and about visual culture and critical theory. And one of my students um, happened to have been deployed at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq, and he had guarded those prisoners that I had been writing about. He replaced the soldiers who replaced the soldiers who were in those photographs. And meeting him was actually the most transformative experience of my life because um, he was an artist. He was painting uh, he was painting portraits of the people that he had guarded in those mm -hmm. in that detention center and people who had been um, tortured in that detention center. Um, and he was also a college student who had joined the military to get enough money to go to school. And so I, you know, I've been thinking about this idea abstractly, like what is our responsibility when we see images of violence? But now I had to ask myself, what is my responsibility as a university professor, as a college professor who has students in our classroom who have to go to war in order to have enough money to go to school. How does that require me to think differently about what it means to be a professor, about what higher education means, about what my complicity is in war, about what we're asking people to do? And I got to see the aftermath in his life of what being at war looked like, and it was intense. Um, so I'm just grateful to him, and I ended up writing about him in my book called Draw Your Weapons, I call him Miles in the book, but he's one of the main characters in that story. Um, and it talks about, about that, what difference can art make? What are our responsibilities as people living in the United States, sending people to war like you, um, you know, and what is my, what is required of me as a citizen and, and as a thinker and as a professor and as a writer um, in response? Whew. Wow. Sorry, thank you for sharing that. That's quite the that's quite the onion to peel. I didn't think we were gonna get started that way. <laughs> this was highly unexpected. That's what I get for not reading all your books prior to having this interview. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened. So, uh, it is my fault. Uh, so, uh, tell us a, a little bit about um, uh, you know as, as we're moving now towards towards the now and and thank you for sharing that by the way and gosh uh, I, I think we might have to dive back into that but um so that was one of your books you have been published now how many times I published four books and I have a fifth book coming out in May okay so just take us a talk to us a, a little bit about your first four books before we dive into the now and the current book that you're writing if you can just kind of share with us a little bit about that please um, sure. My first book is called Taught by America, and it um, talks about 
teaching in Compton, California, teaching elementary school. I taught first and second grade in a bilingual classroom, self-contained bilingual classroom. And as a white American um, who grew up with money and privilege, it was my, embarrassingly, my exposure to uh, structural racism and systemic poverty and made me question everything I've been told about myself and what it meant, meant to have gone to Yale, what it, you know, what it meant to be smart, what it meant to be um, successful. In my classroom, I had 36 first grade students in my classroom, mostly um, black and brown. I had one white student and mm -hmm. they, my classroom had no books. We had a ceiling that was collapsing um, that had tiles that were covered in asbestos. We had no playground. We had no windows that opened. Um, they were extremely bright, amazing, loving, fun, kind um, people. And from the very beginning, they were being set up uh, for failure. They were you know, being harmed by the very system that had been designed to help me. So that was my awakening um, as, a, as a white person uh, to structural and systemic racism. And it called me to live differently in the world and to figure out what I wanted to do in response to that. So that's the subject of my first book. My second book is called um, A Church of Her Own. And I interview a bunch of women like me who tried to be leaders in churches and experienced tremendous sexism and racism in that process. So that's that second book. My third book is called Breaking Up With God, A Love Story, which is about my decision to walk away from being ordained as a priest. And then my fourth book is called Draw Your Weapons, which is about um, Miles, the student I talked about earlier, and about a conscientious objector during World War II who was um, put in prison for uh, refusal to fight and for a refusal to report to the work camps that conscientious objectors are supposed to go to. Um, and while he was in prison, he built a violin in the prison's wood shop. And I saw a photograph of him decades later when his grandson completed that violin and gave it to him on his birthday. And I just saw a photograph of him in the Boston Globe and everything in my body said, you have to know this person, you have to interview him, you have to write about him. So I traveled and met him and became friends with his family and one of his daughters. Um, so his, his name is um, Howard and his daughter's name is Kayleen and Howard and Miles are kind of these two people, a conscientious objector and a soldier, both of them artists, both of them trying to figure out how, how to live in the world in the face of tremendous suffering. Um, and so that book is about what different images might make and what people can do to stop violence uh, that feels like it can't be stopped. Whew. All right. So that's quite a bit of storytelling right there. I like to keep it light, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just some light reading. It's just like, here's a feel-good story. Just <laughs> sit around the fire. No, but that's good. That that Those are the kind of stories that uh, create... Um, impactful conversations and and they're the ones that, that trigger at you know those not just impactful but at times very difficult conversations that can you know drive significant change when people have compassion for each other and and are able to have to be respectful as, as they discuss such heavy topics that's pretty that's pretty awesome and man that's what we were doing then but now we have um a book uh, that we're working on right now i say we and you you are excuse me <laughs> uh, i can barely write a haiku 
Um, and you know how to spell haiku. Uh, Oh, but um, you know, I also I, I want to be respectful because I I, I know it's close and, and and dear to your heart. So um, I you know you let me know how much I can ask and how much I cannot ask. because uh, just like the previous books, it's also again impactful storytelling, but but it can it can also weigh heavy. I'm happy to talk about it. You know, it's my life right now, so I'm comfortable with it. But um, the my next book that's coming out in May, it's actually coming out on National Foster Care Day on May 4th, and it's coming out the week be right before Mother's Day. It's called Stranger Care, a memoir of loving what isn't ours. And it's going to be published by Random House. And it tells the story of um, my husband and I, Eric is his name, choosing not to have a biological child and deciding to grow our family by becoming foster parents. And it tells the story of becoming a foster mother to a three-day-old baby girl and bringing her home and then what happens after that. Um, so it's really a book that, it's my most personal book I've ever written. Um, and it asks what the world might look like if we chose to live as if we were all related as if we were all family, all kin, um, would we live differently if we thought of strangers as our relatives, if we thought of trees as our relatives, if we thought of whales and stones and mountains and enemies as people that we were somehow, or beings were somehow responsible for. Um, so that, that's what that book is about. And Stranger Care is what Eric and I were called in the foster care system. We're called non-relative care providers or stranger care. Um, so I wanted to really think through what does that look like to care for the stranger um, and who is the stranger um, in this particular story. Whew. Wow. Wait, um, how, how did that journey start it? Because um, I, I'm, I'm not entirely too familiar with the, with, with, you know, with foster care, you know, the adoption process. Um, if you were to, you know, consume you know popular culture media pop media you know it will seem that it's at times probably even easier to uh, adopt a child from a foreign country uh, mm -hmm. than to adopt a child here from the US um, you know what what made you guys as a family decide that you were gonna you know enter the foster care system here and you know and and, and bring a child into your life here as to like doing it from somewhere else well, in the United States, there are um, 500,000 children in the foster care system on any given day, half a million children. Um, and many of those people are living with stranger care, with non-relative care providers like Eric and me. Many of them will return to their families. Um, they'll only be in foster care for a, a temporary period of time. But 100,000 right now are available for adoption. And they're mostly older, older kids. Um, so Eric and I came to the decision about adoption for different reasons. Uh, for Eric, he's um, an environmentalist and he didn't want to create another human being, another American human being. He wanted to give a child to a home. He wanted to give a home to a child that needed one that already existed. He didn't see the point. And if there's all these kids that already need homes, why would we make a new one? Um, but I wanted to have a baby. I wanted to... Um, I thought I wanted to have a baby. And so I had to really think about like, well, what does that mean to be married to someone who doesn't want to have a baby? So I 
thought about it. I went to therapy about it. And eventually I realized, well, it wasn't being pregnant that was important to me. That didn't really matter to me. What mattered was being a mother. And I didn't need to have a baby. I wanted to be a parent. I didn't. Um, and that that felt like all of a sudden, like, well, of course, why hadn't I thought about this before? Um, but the reason we pursued foster care was actually kind of ignorant on our part. We hadn't done a lot of research. We knew that there were 500,000 children in foster care. We figured it would be easy and pretty common to be able to give a child a permanent home. A lot of kids in foster care are moved from home to home to home to home to home to home, and it causes a lot of trauma for them. So we thought that being a foster family who was willing to be a permanent home for a child who needed one might be a useful thing to be. Um, but it proved much more complicated than that. You know, I think we really underestimated the immediate attachment that happened when we brought this three-day-old baby girl home. We were madly in love with her. And we underestimated how often um, Idaho reunifies. Uh, the national statistic for foster kids being reunified with their biological family is around 50%. In Idaho, it's over 75%. Um, so the goal of foster care in Idaho is reunification, often at the cost to the child. Um, so uh, we didn't know either of those things um, when we went into it. Um, I'm not sure we would have made a different choice, but we definitely learned by doing. Okay, so to the untrained to the untrained ear, such as such as I. So, uh, you know, uh, national rate, 50% of uh, reunification, 75% here in Idaho. Uh, for somebody that's not very familiar uh, with the foster care system and, and the process of, you know, trying to adopt a child, um, it, it would seem that perhaps, you know, family reunification will, will be a good thing. But then mm -hmm. you mentioned, you know, at the cost of the child, meaning perhaps at times or I don't know what that what that number. I don't, don't know that you know that or not, but uh, what the data says. But perhaps that might not be the best thing for the child, even though that's what it's happening here statewide at, at such a high rate. Is that what you're, you're you're telling us? Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, the foster care system and adoption in the United States has a very racist history. Um, you know, you can think of Indian schools where kids were, Native Americans were taken from their parents and um, brought, uh, taken from their families and sent to these boarding schools where they were forced to dress differently. They weren't allowed to speak their native languages and often they didn't see their families again. Or you can think about um, African-American children stolen off the streets of New York City during um, the period of slavery and sold to the South. Um, and that, that kind of racism remains in our system where if you're a black child, you're highly more likely to be taken from your parent for no reason and you're less likely to be returned to them and you're more likely to be abused by the people that are there to, supposedly to help you. So it's really complicated. Um, our foster daughter was white, so it's a little bit different um, in terms of the, the ways that racism was affecting it, but definitely classism affects the system. You know, the people whose children are taken are often very poor, they're often struggling with addiction. Um, so many systems have failed by the time that a child gets into foster care. You know, it has to be a situation where they don't have any other family that could care for that child. Um, so I don't, I don't want to live in a country where we take people's children and we don't return them because 
they're too right. poor or they're too gay or they're too black or they're too feminist or they're too atheist or too whatever we decide does not make a good parent. You know, I think mm -hmm. there's a huge danger in that. And child protective systems all over the country have a lot of power that is often unchecked. Um, so reunification, yes, should be the goal. The goal should be um, supporting families to stay together. But sometimes I feel like it has swung back too far the other direction. And when reunification is the only goal, um, then, for example, in our foster daughter's case, when she was reunified with her biological mother, all the supports that the mother had while the foster daughter was in our care disappeared. So all of a sudden she doesn't get she doesn't have mentoring. She doesn't have social workers checking on her. She doesn't have access to um, free classes. She doesn't have job support. Um, she's on her own. So the moment reunification happens, all the supports are cut off. Well, that, that doesn't really help anyone. So I think the entire um, system needs to be reimagined. Um, and in my experience, um, the foster children in our country are the most vulnerable people that we live in this country with. Um, and I think the pandemic has shown that as a country, we don't take care of the vulnerable. We don't understand that as what it means to be um, a contributing member of our society. We don't think that yeah. care extends to others. And I think that that is evident in the way that the foster care system is designed and the way it works. Um, by the time people enter it, so many systems have failed. I think it's, it's not reasonable to expect it to solve everything. Um, but I don't think in every case reunification is the right answer for, for the child in question. Okay. A couple of questions on, on all of that. And, and thank you for sharing again, Sarah. Um, so w what I'm hearing is then that there are systems in place, you know, once, once the, the child or children enter the foster care in system in which, yes, the goal is reunification. So there's going to be some sort of support system for the parent, uh, whether that might be with employment assistance or that might be with mentoring, as you mentioned, or that might be with uh, substance ad addiction, you know, and, and, and whatnot. But then what I'm hearing is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but when reunification does happen, and you could argue that perhaps that's when the support is needed most, the support is then taken away because the goal all along was reunification, check on the box, we did our job, you know, you got it, you're good. Exactly, okay. exactly. And because you have these underfunded, under-resourced departments of child welfare, um, the goal is to clear your caseload. And so reunification allows you to do that. Um, and it's not the, necessarily the fault of the social workers. These are human beings who have big hearts and who went into this work because they want to make a difference and they want to protect children. But what they see on a daily basis is so traumatic. I mean, they see the worst that we do to one another and it's the worst that we do and it's being done to children. That uh, in some ways they have to kind of, you know, set that aside, set their hearts aside. Um, in my experience, the social workers that I knew were very traumatized people who weren't getting the supports that they needed either. Um, so in an overworked, underfunded system, of course, you're gonna end up doing what protects the system itself, what protects your time, what protects your heart, and not necessarily what, what protects children best. Right, and especially when it's underfunded, I mean, there's, I mean, off the top of my 
of my head, you know, I think of, you know, Family Advocates, which is an organization that is there to, you know, to, to speak, you know, to those who are most vulnerable in, in a situation like that, which would be the children. And at times, more often than not, unfortunately, they come from this, you know, this, this terrible family situations in which there was been a great deal of abuse and, and through their programs, both, uh, reactive and proactive uh they, they try to make a change but it's it's just um <laughs> it seems to be a, a drop in the bucket and of course you know that 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 drop means a whole lot to, to those that can be helped you know but then like the rest is just like when you look from the outside in it can be very um disheartening and i cannot imagine mm -hmm. being on that line of work for a long period of time i, I just do not believe I don't want you to, you know, give up too much of the story. I want people to to experience that the way that you want them to experience it, which is, you know, through through your book. Um, this is a is a very, um, gosh, it's such a heavy journey. Uh, what has changed for you since this all started? Um, I mean, there's always the most obvious thing was like, oh, we're friends and, and we're going to help. And, you know, you didn't think about, you know, making a, a, an immediate bond with this, you know, you know, brand new tiny human. And, you know, and now here we here we are, which I can only imagine. I, I don't know what that looks like, but it, it probably, you know, it's, it smells of legal everywhere. And, um, and you know, I, and, and legal also means costly and not everybody has the means for that too, which can be then even that much more frustrating for a whole lot of people. So with, with that, I guess, you know, me being Captain Obvious and um, talking too much, I, I just want to know, you know, what, what has changed, you know, for you and your husband since all started? Um, I think what, I think there's a few things. One is, you know, before I w became a parent, um, people would say to me that the love that they felt for their children was unlike any love they'd ever felt. And I felt like it framed <laughs> um, non-parents as efficient in some way. Um, but when we welcomed our foster daughter home, I definitely had that experience. I loved her in a way I hadn't loved any being before. But for me, uh, because that love wasn't genetic, it wasn't, you know, because part of my DNA was out there in the world, but it was rather because I felt like the universe had gifted me this child and said, here, you know, tend, tend this, tend this. She's yours to care for, for maybe for a week, maybe for months. We don't know how long, but tend her. And that it was that, that responsibility for another human life that expanded my heart. And I think that what it showed me is that my heart is capable of expanding for any kind of being, you know, and I think all of us are capable of that, that and that we just have to listen for that here, tend this, you know, about a mountain, about a refugee, about an asylum seeker, about our neighbor who has COVID, you know, that, that all kinds of beings are crying out for our attention and our care and can we answer them? And so that's, that's one main thing. I think another is, um, 
grief. You know, it, it's been my most um, my most acute experience of grief, and it's made me wish I could be different towards friends who were grieving. You know, I think um, so many of the ways that we talk to one another in grief uh, falls flat. You know, I think uh, I had a friend who said grief is like another language and you'll be able to tell right away when someone knows how to speak it. And that's very true. You know, um, I think it's hard to be around someone who's grieving. So how do we tend the the people around us who are in pain? What do we do for them? What do we say, you know, and what Mm -hmm. feels good and what doesn't feel good. So I've, I've come to understand myself as, as a person in grief. And I think that that hopefully has made me a better friend in the future. Um, I also think it's transformed my writing. I wrote Stranger Care as a as a love letter for my foster daughter. Um, you know, I wrote it because if I'm no longer allowed to mother her, I want to help create a world that will mother her, that a world that will make her safe no matter where she is, no matter what her economic future is, no matter what her schooling is, no matter what her environment is, that she will be loved and well cared for. Um, so part of that is creating a world where all the vulnerable are cared for. Um, and so I started to understand my writing differently and what was required of me as a writer differently. Um, so that's been very transformative. And then I think the last thing is I want to be a mother. You know, I really, I want to be a parent. Eric and I Mm -hmm. want to be parents. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how to make, how to make that happen and what that might look like and how to do it ethically and, um, so those, I think, are have been the most transformative parts of this experience for me. Wow. Poof. <sighs> well, thank you, Sarah. Um, what do we have to look forward to? And and this is, I don't want to give up too much because I, I want to, you know, I want us to talk about the Alliance and your work there and, and all the stuff that you're doing. And we're going to get there and we're going to probably end up circling back to a number of things. Um, outside of the nonprofit work, which we'll start talking here in just a little bit, you know, what, you know, your, your book is coming out, uh, next year, which is, you know, next month. Uh, what else do, um, you know, you and and your, you know, your, your career and your business as a writer, what else do we get to look forward to? Uh, is there going to be already another project that you're going to be looking to put together or, uh, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, perhaps they want to like learn from you, like how, how does that look like? How does that work? That's such a kind question. <laughs> Thank you for asking that. Um, I, I write full time and I also teach writing. I help people write. Um, and I don't do that in a university anymore. I do it on my own. So I lead monthly writing workshops. I do book, book coaching for people. Um, I run something called the Word Cave, which is a four-day virtual writing retreat. I help people create space and time to center what matters to them, to center their art. And for me, that's a kind of activism. I think art helps us practice the skills we need to remake the world. Every time we make a new sentence or a loaf of bread or a painting or a sculpture, we're practicing what it looks like to invent something new to introduce something new into the world and it shows us in a small scale what's possible on a larger scale so i help support artists um, in their writing i work with artists i lead artist statement writing workshops um i lead these virtual retreats and then i just launched something called the word river which is like ongoing support because i think the biggest 
battle for artists is, is making that time, um, prioritizing that time, centering that creative work because everything else um, seems more important. Um, so that's mm. what I help people do is, is prioritize that work. Oh, that's really cool. And when do you have a, do you have a website or anything like that that people can go and check out, you know, what your availability is and like your calendar and what that looks like as far as those projects? I do. I have a website. It's just my name, sarahcentillis.com. And I have a workshop tab and um, it lists all the offerings there and people can sign up. Okay. I'm going to see if maybe Sweet Baby James are in the background as we continue to uh, have our interview with Sarah. Maybe you can put up the website over there. What's the name of the website again? It's just sarahcentillis.com. Thanks. Yeah. No, I just wanted you to say it again. Uh, so, yeah. Thank you. Sweet Baby James, make it happen. Um, so <laughs> he's wonderful. He, 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 just, he, he, this, this guy moves my heart. Uh, he's just awesome. So, um, nonprofit work. All right. So I, uh, I, I get pretty excited about, um, about your work in, in the in the nonprofit sector, and I'm gonna do my best not to steal any thunder because I just want to start spitting out some games. So I'm gonna let you talk about it. I happen to know people home watching their devices, and their computer, or whatever. They don't know what I'm talking about. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now, and what and 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 the why. Why why is it that you're doing it? Why is it that you you consider this important work? Yes, um, and as if we haven't touched on every single possible controversial topic, right? We've talked about religion, we've talked about war, yeah. we've talked about adoption, we've talked about foster care, now let's talk about immigration. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> I Please. run the Alliance of Idaho, um, and Jaime is actually on our board, which is like the highlight for me of 2020 that he agreed <laughs> to do that. Um, I love it. And we started four years ago, um, we had uh, 501c3 status through another organization called the Centro de Comunidad y Justicia en Boise, um, but now we're becoming our own 501c3. And we started right after um, Trump was elected president, and it became clear that the immigration policies that his administration were putting forward were going to terrorize people in our community. Um, so we started by four women, and we wanted to help protect the human rights of immigrants. And so that's what we did for the first four years. We ran a hotline. Um, that people could call if they were facing an emergency or if someone in their family was facing an emergency and we would connect them to um, ethical, uh, low-cost legal services. Um, so we did that for four years. We probably helped about 100 families in Blaine County. We ran Know Your Rights workshops. We had citizenship days. We had DACA days. Um, we educated business owners about their rights and how to better protect their employees. Um, but we kind of flew under the radar. We thought that it was important for us to keep a low profile so that we wouldn't endanger any of the people that we were trying to help. Um, but then uh, when the Black Lives Matter protests happened this past summer, um, after the killing of George Floyd, um, we really ha faced a reckoning about uh, what kind of organization, organization we wanted to be. And we decided to become bigger and bolder and more visible and more anti-racist and we decided to go out on our own um, so that's the incarnation that we're existing in now um, we built a board of directors um, like i said that you're part of um, that is majority latinx i'm running the alliance now but 
Our director of community engagement, her name is Becky Lopez. She's gonna run it in six months. Um, I think it's important to amplify and center the voices of Latinx people. Um, and I think it's important for us to be led by um, the, exactly the people that we're trying to support in our community. Um, we are going to bring our own lawyer on staff to act as a case manager and to offer free office hours for legal help. We realized that the pandemic made visible this tremendous need for legal assistance in our community and showed that it's impacted by status. Um, we expect there to be continuing need, even with the new administration. I think even more people are going to come forward and want to apply. Um, you know, whatever that might look like for them. Um, we also want to create an incubator for Latinx leadership in our in our valley. Um, we want to help bridge the trust gap. Um, there's robust services in Blaine County, but a lot of people in the impacted communities don't feel like those services belong to them. So we want to try to be a bridge, um, whether we're talking about bridging people to the Hunger Coalition or to the Summer Symphony or to the trails here. We want to say this, this place belongs to you. Um, and we can help you access whatever resources that you need. Um, so we've become explicitly an anti-racist organization. We're trying to center Latinx leadership and we're working hard to like triple or quadruple or multiply by 10, the kind of um, impact we can have in our Valley and the more people that we can help. That's wonderful. There's going to be like 12 questions coming at you now. Um, <laughs> but the first one, uh, and, and this is the most important one, uh, I think, because um, sometimes it just makes people feel uncomfortable. And this is a conversation that I've had already with, with a number of different guests. Um, when an organization, such as a nonprofit or a business or an individual or a group of people, uh, you know, identify themselves as anti-racist, what does that mean? Because at times it can be heavily misconstrued. It makes um, people uncomfortable. It uh, it makes some people immediately say, "Well, I'm not racist. I don't have to announce it." <laughs> and it's just, and, and that's a that's a different rabbit hole. Uh, just just giving a little taste as to where I'm where I'm heading at with this, and also for for everybody that is watching. Again, some some heavy topics today. We're mixing it up. Uh, what does that mean? Being an organization that 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 is proud to say, you know, out you know out and loud that they're anti-racist. Well, I think um, in the culture that we find ourselves, it's not enough to be neutral about racism. I think that that's what that shows. It's not enough to just say I'm not racist. Um, you know, I work hard against my own internalized racism. I've been fighting against my racism since I was in those classrooms in Compton. Um, and that's been, I'm going to show my age now. How many years ago was it? 25 years ago, I was teaching elementary school in Compton. And it's ongoing every day. You know, if you're if you're an American, if you were raised in this country, and especially if you're a white American, you're racist. It's not that you are mean to other people, but you've benefited from the structures that have kept some people down and lifted other people up. And it's unconscious sometimes, um, the interpersonal racism, but racism, but more important, it's structural. And the work that we do at the Alliance only exists because of the racist structures that exist. There would be no problems for the people that we serve if there was no racism. Um, so in order to be an organization that is supporting um, immigrants in our community and their human rights, we have to be against racism, internalized racism and structural racism. 
And um, it's like, you can't be neutral on a moving train. You have to take a stand. I understand that it makes some people uncomfortable and there's actually organizations in our Valley that have lost funding as a result of being more boldly anti-racist or speaking out in support of Black Lives Matter. But I think the bolder organizations can be, you actually open yourself up to new sources of funding. There's people who are relieved to hear you speak those words. And that's what I'm more interested in is how do we, open up what we do. If, if people don't like that we're anti-racist, they don't have to support us. But there's like for every person that doesn't like that we're anti-racist, there's 20 who like that we are. So they support us. Maybe they're not going to give us a million dollars, but they'll give us um, more money. And the other point I think at the Alliance is we're trying to make room for other organizations. If we can be on the edge, if we can push the envelope of what it's acceptable for organizations to be, then other organizations can follow suit and become bolder in their vision and their mission-driven work. Um, so for me, anti-racist, it's funny that it makes people uncomfortable. Like, do you want to be pro-racist? Like, those are the choices. <laughs> There's right. anti-racist or pro-racist. That's it. There's no other place to be. So um, we might as well claim what we're doing. <sighs> this is a tricky question. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think that people are uncomfortable with the term anti-racist? I think that it exposes um, the lies at the center of the way we imagine our nation. Um, I think we have tremendous rhetoric about being the land of the free, but at its start, um, was genocide and enslavement of one group of people by another group of people. And I don't think we've come to terms with that. And I think that we haven't made amends. We haven't repaired the violence that was done. In fact, we pretend it doesn't exist. So I think part of the discomfort is that shame. And instead of feeling shame, people would rather feel anger. So it's um, a move uh, rooted in denial and self-preservation and in the myth of, of what this nation is. I think there's that beautiful publication that was put out by the New York Times called um, 1619. Um, and one of the main essays in there is about this woman whose father was black American, was also uh, flew the American flag. And, and she makes the argument that it's black Americans over and over and over again who have shown us what this country can be. Um, and so we would do well by listening to their vision that expands what freedom is and who it's for. Beautifully explained and beautifully said. Um, where can we go to learn more about the Alliance? Um, you can go to theallianceofidaho.org. I think it might just be allianceofidaho.org where our website is being redesigned. So it's a little bit clunky right now, but you can go there. Um, and there's information and also a contact and an email. You can send us an email if you'd like to learn more or if you'd like to donate. We're having an end of year campaign, so I hope people will donate too. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, it is time for shameless self-promotion. Uh, that means, you know, we're, we're approaching towards uh, the end of our, of our hour. Usually we're the last we're the last uh, in line uh, for for our time here at Argos, but today we got started, so we gotta adhere to the to the timeline. Um, again, I know you said it before, but perhaps somebody that might just jumped on on the stream right now, where can they learn more about you and and your writing business and and, and your coaching and all the shop, uh, all the workshops that you got going on, your books, and then yet again about the nonprofit work. 
Um, they can learn about that at my website, which is sarahcentillis.com. And um, my newest book, Stranger Care, is available for pre-order now. Pre-order really helps authors. So if you know writers, it's really important to pre-order their book. It makes a big difference. Um, and there's also a tab there about workshops and um, classes that I run and retreats that I run. Um, and then you can learn about the Alliance at allianceofidaho.org. And I will look forward to collaborating with you. Wonderful. Sarah, I cannot thank you enough. <laughs> you could have spent your time doing something way better than to hang out with me, but I really, really appreciate your time and then um, sharing uh, your stories. Um, some of them very, you know, um, wow, they're, they're heavy stories, and I'm so glad that you're so willing to share with all of us, not just me. Um, if you're watching, make sure you check her out on her website. Check out her books. They're wonderful. Incredible storytelling. Uh, again, impactful stories make for impactful conversations. If, if, if conversations where they're easy all the time, then they're probably not worth having. Um, as always, I want to thank again uh, my friends here at Argus Production. And if you are checking out the stream live, then you're on Argus Stream TV. Make sure you keep liking us on social media. Make sure you're supporting them. Um, or again, shout out at the end of every episode to uh, Vital Elements. Uh, CBD products out here out of Idaho. If you like to support the show, that's one great way to do it. There's always the link on our YouTube channel and it's always the link on our Facebook. Feel free to follow us on Instagram. And the same thing with the Argos Productions crew, Justin, Erica, and Sweet Baby James out in the back. Um, so 2020 coming to an end and, uh, and, and the guests just keep getting better and better. Uh, please make sure that if you are liking the content that you go ahead and go into our YouTube channel, you punch that like button, that you subscribe to our channel. If you can support and it doesn't always have to be money, you can always go ahead and share the content and just get it out there. Um, and for like probably the 20th time, Sarah, thank you so much for your time and thank you for uh, being you and, and being willing to be involved and doing the kind of work and telling the kind of stories that most people will actually probably shy away from. Uh, it speaks tremendously about your courage, uh, no, your, excuse me, your character and, and, and the type of courage that you're carrying in your heart. Um, I'm glad that we met this year. I'm glad that I'm on the board. Thank you for the invitation and I cannot wait to continue to collaborate and work with you. Uh, for those of you watching at home, thank you so much for tuning in today. Check us out next week. It's going to be an awesome sauce episode yet again. I'm just waiting for some confirmation. And then the week after that, we're going to have the um, virtual beer tasting with um, Jacob Black out of Lost Grove Brewing here in Idaho. Thank you so much, guys. Love you a long time. We took a two-week hiatus. It's just really, really good to be back. And again, when you get a chance, get out there and be kind to somebody. See you later, Idaho.